speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Amen. How can I, how can we trust God? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. You might not have said it in that way to yourself or to someone else, but sometimes it can feel like God has failed us. Maybe in a time of great suffering, when you're overwhelmed by the world, maybe you feel like God has abandoned you, like at the death of a loved one, or when it seems like the country you love is falling apart, or when your child tells you that they don't believe in Jesus and that they're not a Christian. God has promised that he will always be with us until the end of the age. Paul has just said one verse ago that nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet, we suffer the brokenness of this world under the burden of evil. How can we trust anything that God has to say to us? This question gets to the very heart of what Paul is, tr- is talking about in Romans. Throughout this letter, Paul is explaining how it is that the gospel works. How can God be just and the one who justifies the ungodly, as Paul says in Romans 3.26? Or to put it another way, how can God allow evildoers into his presence, into his kingdom, even into his family? How can God remain good and upright whilst declaring guilty people innocent? I mean, what kind of justice system is that? What kind of judge calls guilty people innocent? And how can we trust anything that that judge says? Well, Paul begins his letter by explaining in chapters 1 and 2 that all of humanity have sinned and are deserving of God's judgment, condemnation and punishment. And this applies as much to the Jew as it does to the Gentile. Because even though Israel has circumcision and the law, as he says in chapter 3, they too have failed to be faithful to God. This means that they, just like the Gentiles, are guilty before God. But if everyone is a sinner and guilty before God, how can anyone be saved? This is what Paul explains from the middle of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 11. He explains that salvation is and always has been based on faith in the promises of God. He points to Abraham and reminds us that even he was saved because of his faith in the promises of God. Salvation is always, from Genesis to Revelation, by the grace of God, received through faith in the promises of God. So if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, what do we make of God's promises in the Old Testament to Israel? How can we trust that God will do what he has promised if the nation of Israel is not saved? Has God failed Israel? This is the question that Paul begins to answer in our passage today, in Romans chapter 9. Listen to these verses, to verses 1 and 2 again with me. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Moments ago, Paul had just reached the dizzying heights of chapter 8, 
proclaiming the astounding news that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of this, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. But now just two verses later, his joy and excitement for the gospel has turned to sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Well, what leads Paul to this sorrow? Well, listen to verse 3 with me again. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. The cause of Paul's great sorrow is that his own people, his relatives according to the flesh, have been cut off from Christ. They are accursed, without hope and without God in the world. And this causes him such great distress that he wishes that he could change his position with theirs. He wishes that he could sacrifice his own life for theirs. Greater love has no man than this, that a man may lay down his life for his friends. It's quite remarkable that Paul would offer his eternal salvation for the sake of theirs. It's very Christ-like of him, isn't it? For that is what Christ did for us. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Paul's emotions are clear. And it's encouraging to see Paul uh, feel so deeply for these people. Like a parent longing for their child to know Christ, Paul's love for these people is quite evident. But Paul is not ashamed. He is vulnerable His heart is wide open for the world to see. He doesn't care what you think about him. He's just honest and raw. Oh, that God would make me more like this, that I would be less self-obsessed, and I would care so deeply about the eternal fate of others and so willingly proclaim that care to others and that we as a church, as the body of Christ, would cry out to God and weep for our neighbours, weep for our city, weep for our country, weep for our world, that they may know Jesus and believe in the freeing power of his gospel. Well, who are these people that have been cut off from Christ? If you haven't figured it out already, Paul makes it clear in verses 4 and 5. Listen to these verses again. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. The people who are accursed and cut off from Christ and who are causing Paul such great sorrow are the Israelites. But, whoa, hang on, Paul, what are you you saying? The Israelites? You can't be serious here. They are the Israelites. To them belongs all the things that you've just been saying are ours in Christ Jesus. How can they be cut off from Christ? Aren't they the adopted people of God in Exodus 4.22? Don't you, God, call Israel my firstborn son? Don't they have the glory of God, the very visible presence of God among his people as he dwells with them in his temple? Don't they have the covenants, which is to say the special relationship with God as stipulated through the promises he's made with them? Then they have the law. Isn't Israel, doesn't Israel have God's written word to them, his commands and their statutes? 
Don't they have the worship, the temple, and the sacrificial system? Don't they have the promises of God, the promises that they will be his people and he will be their God, the promise of one day dwelling with him forever, the promise of a saviour? Doesn't their family line begin with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Israel and the forefathers of our faith in Christ? But even better than all these things, doesn't the Messiah come from their family line? The word Messiah here is the Hebrew word for Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus Messiah in a different language. So how, with all these things, can Israel be cut off from Christ? He literally comes from them, from their line. So if Israel is accursed, then surely it is God who has failed them. If Israel can't be saved, how can we trust any of the promises of God? How can we trust anything that he's ever said? Well, the problem is not that God has failed. Paul will say this in the next verse, in verse 6 of chapter 9. His promises are still true. He's still faithful to his word. The problem is Israel. They have failed to trust God. And they have rejected the very means by which God is bringing about their salvation. They have rejected Jesus. They failed to trust that God would save them. They failed to trust that he would do what he had promised. Instead, they've tried to save themselves. They've tried to establish their own salvation, their own righteousness, their own justification. And the source of their problem is in their privilege. The Israelites enjoyed a, a privileged relationship with God. He was their God, they were his people. And they had all those blessings that we just spoke about. And yet, despite all of these things, they were blind to the reality that all those things were pointing towards. They could not see all the promises of God were pointing to Jesus and the salvation that would come through him. We see Jesus confronting this problem all throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees And he says to them in verses 39 and 40, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, the Pharisees, who were the leaders of Israel, got so wrapped up in the scriptures, so uh, consumed by them, that they missed the whole point of them. So much so that when the very one that they were talking about, that they were written by, that they were uh, written about, when he came to earth, they rejected him and hung him on a cross. See, the kingdom of God is not like the nations of this world. You don't become a citizen of heaven through natural birthright. Even Israel, though they are the chosen people of God, are not guaranteed salvation based on their family line. Salvation is not something you can inherit from your parents. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? Jesus said this to Nicodemus. Even for Israel, salvation is based on faith in the promises of God. So by rejecting Jesus Christ, they rejected God's word. 
and they've rejected the, fulfill- the fulfillment of his promises. They've rejected all that the law and the prophets were pointing towards. They confused the sign with the thing that it represents. Instead of seeing that God had promised a Messiah that would save Israel, they've sought their own salvation through their adherence of God's commands. Instead of reading the law and being convicted that they could not live up to God's standards, they thought to themselves, I can do it. I can please God. I'm an Israelite. It's my birthright. But we are no better than Israel. We all fail to trust God as well. This is a problem for our church and our denomination. Paul might as well have said, we are the Episcopalians. To us belong the Book of Common Prayer, the liturgy, the choir. To us belong the Reformers, Cramner and Tyndale and Latimer. And from us come the Methodists and the Baptists and the Congregationalists. Or maybe we are the Adventists. Ours is the Gospel, the right one, and with thy spirit. To us belong the Debata-laden and the Refectory and the poor Cashier. From us come the Zal and the Limehouse and the Pearson. One of the great dangers of our church and of any church really is thinking that salvation is by church membership alone. We can often confuse being a member of a, a physical church with being a member of a spiritual church in the body of Christ. But just as not all Israel are Israel, so too not all the church are the church. A person is not saved by church attendance alone. A person is not saved by Episcopalianism alone. We too, like Israel, can miss the point of all that we are doing. We can be tempted to worship the Bible or the pulpit or our liturgy or anything else that we are doing rather than allowing them to point us to Jesus. We can fail to trust God that he has sent his son to save us and we can keep trying to seek our own salvation through being good enough for God. This is personally a problem for me. I fail to trust God. I know in my head and I preach with my lips that Jesus Christ is Lord that I'm saved by grace through faith. I know it so well, and yet I cannot get what is in my head down into my heart. I fail to trust God in my heart. I fail to trust God when he says, Michael, I love you so much that I've given my one and only son for you. Surely not me, Lord. I, I don't deserve such a great sacrifice. I'm not worthy of your love, Lord. I just, I can't trust you. And so, I need to preach the gospel to myself time and time again, reminding myself of the good news of Jesus Christ that I am so loved by God that he would give his only son for me. But it's not about how suitable I am for God, but that salvation is a gift of God for all who trust in him, and the promise of salvation he offers through Jesus Christ. It's not given to those who are deserving. It's not earned by those who attend church enough. It's not granted to those who belong to the right family, to the the family line of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It's not acquired by our own efforts. It does not depend on human desire or effort, 
but purely on God's mercy. It's given freely by the grace of God to those who through faith trust in him and the son that he sent to die for our sins. This is the good news because it's not about you. It's not about whether you are good or bad, rich or poor, uh, sick or healthy, uh, successful or failing, fruitful or fruitless, a somebody or a nobody. It doesn't matter if you have it all together or if you are falling completely apart. The gospel is not about you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his death and, re- death and resurrection, his death on the cross in our place, and his taking the penalty for sin that we deserved. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but that you pour out your grace and mercy upon us. Please remove all the things in our life that distract us, that turn us away from you and keep us from trusting in Jesus. Keep us by your Spirit, trusting in him. Help us, we ask, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.